and uh, we look forward to that time. And um, so we and we leave that decision with the parents, of course. Uh, but that's what we're looking toward. We're looking toward that time when your son or daughter would be ready to stay in big church, uh, if you will. And, uh, and you, can, uh, you can acclimate them along the way. It doesn't have to be, well, one day you're in kids' church and then after that forevermore in big church. But you can start getting them ready. And allowing them opportunities to stay along the way. Well, we're in John. Uh, we have much before us this morning. And uh, good uh, nourishment, spiritual nourishment from God's Word. Uh, we'll begin here in John 12. This is, this is where we are. We're in the last week of the life of Jesus. I believe that what we're reading today occurs on a Tuesday, so he is facing the cross. He is looking at his final days, hours on earth. It's important that we know that. Roughly half the book of John concerns the last week of Christ. We will begin in verse 20. We will read on down through verse 36a. Just the first part of verse 36. There is a lot here. And it fits in the wider context of John's gospel. We'll see that as we uh, break it down this morning. But at, at first, I would just like to read the text. Follow along and take it in. The immediate context of the chapter is that there has been an anointing of Jesus by Mary at the supper that was held for Lazarus and Jesus. Remember, Lazarus, Lazarus was dead. He was sick. He died. Jesus raised him from the dead. Then they held a supper for Lazarus, and the supper was held at the home of Simon the leper. I always find that amusing. Uh, where are you all eating tonight? Well, we're going over to Simon the leper. Well, everybody knows the lepers were unclean. So how in the world? That's a pretty neat sound effect, wasn't it? I don't know where that... I, I guess that was a sign for me to take off. We got to get going here. Uh, accelerate. Okay. So uh, we think, you know, a, a, a leper would have been social, a social outcast. They're unclean. No one wants to uh, socialize with a leper, yet they're eating at his house. So we think he must have been cured, that Jesus had, had cured this leper. And although he was a cured leper, he was still known as Simon the leper. Okay, well, some things you just can't get beyond. So that's where, that's the first real event that takes place in chapter 12. And you have a little back and forth. You have the first words of Judas. Uh, you have uh, really all the disciples were indignant with Mary. We know that from Matthew's gospel. 
that these disciples did not like it. They followed right along with Judas in their anger that this lavish gift was used, was used for the anointing of Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, Mary understands. No one else understood, but Jesus says, Mary did this to prepare me for burial. And then we connect this fact. How did Mary understand? Why was it that she understood, but Jesus' own disciples didn't get it? It's because every time you see Mary in the Bible, she is at the feet of Jesus. She's not talking so much as she is listening. She is listening to the words of Christ. She is absorbing the words of Christ. And those words of Jesus touched her, moved her to the point where in public, she was willing to take this lavish gift of spikenard, a very costly perfume, about a year's wages for a regular working person, and she dumped this all out on Jesus as an act of worship. And then we have the triumphal entry of Jesus. He's, he's going to enter Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was the, the, the site of the, the major opposition toward Christ. He, he did not expect to receive a warm welcome, although it looks as though, uh, it looks pretty promising as he begins. There in that triumphal entry with the waving of the palm trees and the hosannas and all of that. And then we have this. Pops up right out of nowhere. Where is Jesus? He's in Jerusalem and What group of people are we going to read about this morning? But some Greeks. Greeks in Jerusalem. The Jews wouldn't receive Jesus as a general rule, but these Greeks uh, have a good question they want to ask. So let's begin. Let's read this and get going. Now there were, in verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to the worship or to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Philip came, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him. We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of scripture. We pray that you use it in our lives, that you would build us up, that you would instruct us, that you would motivate us as your sons and daughters. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Surprise, surprise. Jesus receives from some Greeks what he never received from Caiaphas and his buddies, what he did not receive from the Jewish Elite, the religious leaders, he receives a request of all things to meet with them. There it is. Now, verse 20, there were some Greeks. The question is, what are they doing in Jerusalem at this time? Most of the Greeks, most of these Gentiles had been scattered about. But they would have come for the feast. The Passover was at hand. It's a celebration of what God had done with the children of Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt. The Passover held there in Jerusalem. So these Greeks are either proselytes, meaning they have converted from paganism to Judaism, and they are allowed to mingle with the Jews, they are allowed to worship with the Jews, they are allowed to celebrate feasts with the Jews, or they could be God-fearers, meaning 
They were sympathetic with the Jews. They appreciated their monotheism and they appreciated their teachings on morality. Yet, if they're God-fearers, they're not able to worship with the Jews. They would have to remain in the court of the Gentiles. And they would be reminded that that is as far as they could go in their worship because there were signs that this is the barrier. This is the dividing line of what? Hostility. You cannot go beyond this barrier because you are a Gentile. You are a God-fearer. You may sympathize. You may enjoy as much of the festivities as you may enjoy, but you're not going beyond this point in your worship. You are still an outsider. We think they're God-fearers. I don't think they're proselytes. So there they are. Now, it's important. This is really important to know. These Greeks have a perspective on what we would call the world. You know, the world is a big deal in John. It's a big word, cosmos. If you go back to John 1, and we have, we have, certainly have time to do that. If you will look... At verse 10, the word world is used a lot here in John. But notice verse 10, John's writing says he was in the world. Who's this he? The word, Jesus, the son of God. He was in the world. He was in the cosmos. And notice the world was made through him. What a, what a, what a great thought. What a great reality. The world was made through him, through Jesus. And there it is. The world did not know him. The world. Oh, go over here to uh, verse 29. There it is. The next day, this is talking about John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming to him and said, what did he say? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the cosmos, Now, these Greeks had a certain view of the world. They viewed the world as beautiful, ordered. They they loved it. They loved the world. And so these Greeks show up and they want an interview with Jesus. For whatever reason, we don't know why. We don't know what struck them about Christ, but they know who, who those are that are close to Christ and they approach Philip. Uh, Some speculate that they approached Philip because his name is more Greek than Hebrew. I don't know about that. I think it just, I think, I think they approached Philip because we don't need a drum roll. We don't have to have a sound effect for everything, do we? Uh, I think they approached Philip because he was accessible. He's there. He's around. And so they came to Philip. And uh, Philip was from Bethsaida of Galilee, probably a little more Gentile out there, and began to ask him, and I love their question, sir, we want to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And the, uh, the language here is that they kept on asking. They kept on, sir, we, we want to see Jesus. 
Well, there's a lot going on. There's a feast. Why don't you go uh, participate in some of the festivities? Give us a rest. Uh, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. These Greeks. Yeah, what did they want? Did they want to ask questions? Did they? We we don't know. We just know they wanted to see Jesus. Did they want to debate philosophy with Jesus? You know, these Greeks love to philosophize, uh, perhaps. Did they want to ask him about the world? Perhaps. We don't know. We don't, all we know is that they want to see Jesus. And Philip, right here in verse 22, he came and told Andrew... You know, Philip is good at that. He's accessible, but a lot of times when he's confronted with a problem, he does not know how to respond. He doesn't know how to just take care of it. So he leans on Andrew quite a bit. So he went and told Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Hey, Jesus, by the way, there's some some Greeks who want to see you. They want an interview with you. They want to have a conversation with you. And so things begin to unfold. There are some marks here in this narrative that I want to point out. The first one is that there were some Greeks. That should catch our eye. Verse 23, Jesus answered them. Did he, is, he, is he saying this within earshot of the Greeks? Is he just talking to his disciples? Is this just to Philip and Andrew? We don't really know. In fact, we don't really hear from the Greeks again. It's almost like they just disappear. And then all the focus is on what Jesus is saying in response to, Sir, there are some Greeks who want to see you. We would see Jesus. I think that is the point today, that we would see Jesus. In fact, if these Greeks got their hearing with Jesus, they still hadn't seen him like they're going to see him. That's part of the point here. Um, Oh, this almost slipped my mind. Verse 19, look at this. The last statement of the Pharisees, when they said, you know, we're not doing any good here. We're not stopping this uh, freight train, which is Jesus, his truth, his power, his following. They said, the what? The world. There it is again in John. The world, the cosmos. I mean, it is an exaggeration, but not. I mean, the world has gone after him. And then the Greeks come by and, you know, they're so worldly in their wisdom and in their thoughts of the world itself and their place in it. Yet they're wanting this interview, this conversation. So Jesus answered them saying, and then it just unravels, just flows, unfolds before our eyes because Jesus is going to drop some truth on us that we need to hear. And one of the reasons we need to hear it is because we live in a world 
that is full of deception and lies. And if we're not careful, we begin to be drawn into the world more than we are drawn into Christ and his truth. I mean, we live in a world that, I mean, for the vast majority of people, the motivation in life, while we might not write it down, are two things. Comfort and convenience. And the reason we know that is because every time there's a new advancement, what do we do? We celebrate it. Well, maybe that'll make life a little easier. Well, if that is our mentality, Jesus is going to be so countercultural this morning, it's not even funny. It's sobering what he has to say. It's sobering what he has to say about himself and what lie in the immediate future. And it's sobering what he says about those who follow him. So this is the, the next thing. Here on the agenda, right here, Jesus answered them saying, and here it is, the hour has come. Now, you read John, and you're going to come to John 2, verse 4. He looks at his mom and says, mine hour is not yet. And then you can read later on, and he'll say, mine hour has not come. Uh, He looks at the, remember the conversation with a woman at the well? What does he say? An hour is coming. An hour is coming. He says that twice in that conversation. And here, we, for the first time, Jesus says, the hour has come. So these Greeks, for some, in some way, the coming of these Greeks to Jesus, desiring an audience with Jesus, signals to Christ. That his hour has arrived. And I think it all goes back to this. I'll read a verse that just. You probably hadn't read in a long time. For God so loved the. World. There it is. My goodness. There it is again. What do you know? The cosmos. Now let's ask this. Why did he love the world? Did he love the world because the world's lovely? No, he loved the world in spite of the world. The world is as unlovely as it can get. Jesus is walking in the midst of an unlovely world. People who would reject him, people who would lie about him, people who would refuse to believe him, people who would refuse to walk with him, people who would refuse to live by him. Jesus loved the world. So, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So he loves the world in spite of its unloveliness and gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Now, what's interesting, I thought about this this morning. This is pretty good. Did you know that here it says God so loved the world? And later on, 
John in his letters would say to Christians, do not love the world or the things of the world. Wow. Some of us got that backwards. We think, well, God so loved the world, so I guess I'm supposed to so love the world. No, he says, don't love the world. Because only God Almighty could love the world the way the world needed loved. And you and I are never encouraged by God Almighty to join up with this worldly crowd and go along with them. Never. Never. So, he says, my hour has come. That's, that's a huge thing. And then we read on and we get another surprise. For the Son of Man... The son of man. You know, this is Jesus' favorite expression of himself. Son of man. He doesn't say son of God. He doesn't use some other title. He, he calls himself the son of man. To be what? Glorified. So the hour that has come is the time for the son of man to be glorified. So there's all kinds of, of material on the Son of Man, on what that means, what that title is. You can go to Daniel chapter 7 and find it. But basically, we think Jesus used this of himself because, number one, it's rare. You're not going to find it everywhere. It's rare. But number two, he uses it because it encompasses both the sufferings of Christ and the glorification or the exaltation of Christ. So this title covers all the bases. And he says, the hour has come, the hour is nigh for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he brings some more truth, truly, truly. When he says truly, truly, when a, when a statement made by Jesus is prefaced with truly, truly, we should really just hone in on what is being said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. It has to fall into the earth. Here it is. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, you can mark it down. This is a statement that obviously has to do with the death of Christ, as well as the results of that death. And we're talking death. Jesus didn't come to bring a cultural revolution. He didn't come to debate philosophy first and foremost. And indeed, he did teach and he did do miracles and he did a lot of things. But he came for the express purpose to die. And apart from Christ's death, you could mount up his teaching and all of his miracles. But apart from his death, there is no salvation. You have to have a death. There had to be the death of the Son of Man. He didn't just come to be a great example. He didn't come to just teach philanthropy. 
He didn't come just bringing some kind of flimsy social gospel. He came to die. And this is what confused his disciples. This is what confused the Jewish elite. They could not handle a king and a cross. They could handle a king and a coronation. They could not handle a king and a cross. And with Jesus, you're getting a direct reference here in verse 24 to his cross, to his work on the cross, his cross bearing and death on that cross. And he says, when that takes place, when like that grain of wheat, Christ dies. He says, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus knew that to bear fruit, that is to have a great harvest of souls, he must die. Jesus knew that for men and women who are sinners because of the fall and because of our choices and because of our heart and our inclination towards sin, Jesus knew that the only way to bring sons to glory would be through his death. It's the death of Christ. When we gather first Sunday of the month and we have this little piece of bread and we have this cup, we are celebrating his death. Apart from that death, there is no salvation. So Jesus makes that statement, verse 24. It's a very profound statement in reference to his hour has come and in reference to the title, his self-designation as the son of man. Now, verse 25, he's going to speak to you and me personally about our involvement in his enterprise. He says, he who loves his life loses it. Yeah, just think about that one. What does that mean? He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this, there it is again, world, will keep it to life eternal. So, if I'm reading this correctly, which I am, he who loves his life is on a dead-end road. But he who hates his life, he who hates his life in this world, will keep it to life eternal. Oh boy, we better think about this one. And then he goes on. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What's he getting at? Because obviously he is, he is laying out parameters for his followers. He is making, he is, he's really bringing a hard line between those who love their own life and those who hate their life. He says those who love their life in this world will lose it. But he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. What's he saying? All right, right there. He who loves his life. What does that mean? 
It means that self is on the throne. Yeah, self is on the throne. See, the whole, the whole point of the Christian life is that self is not on the throne. That Jesus is on the throne. That's a Christian life. And, you know, we can, we can try to sidestep this. We can try to duck and cover. But I think that what the Lord's saying is, if you profess him and if you, if you follow him, then be true followers of him and, and, and walk with Jesus in order to please Jesus. Don't walk according to self, to please self. The Christian life is all about pleasing Christ, not self. And to put self before Christ is to make an idol out of self. And to put anything else before Christ is to make an idol out of that. It could be self. It could be family. It could be whatever. All I know is, according to these words, self is not to be on the throne. Christ is to be on the throne. The question isn't, what can I do today to please myself? The question is, what can I do today? What would you have me do Father in heaven, according to the power of Jesus, what can I do? How can I live my life for you, not myself? If anyone serves me, this is so precious. Verse 26, if anyone serves, and notice, it's still a whosoever will. If anyone serves me, did Jesus die for the world? He did. Does that mean everybody goes to heaven? Please help me. Thank you. That's what it exactly doesn't mean everybody goes to heaven. Jesus died for the world without, not without exception, but without distinction. In other words, he didn't die for one particular race. He died for all. But he died to open up the path to heaven that we believe in him and then we go to heaven. That we don't love our own lives, that we renounce our own lives. But we promote the life of Christ. I love that. This is precious. If anyone serves me, and I trust that anyone includes you today, he must follow me. Not make just a simple profession, but a life that lives by that profession and where I am. I love this. This is so good because this is his goal. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Isn't that the goal? Anybody doesn't want to be where Jesus is? I can tell you where Jesus is going to be for all eternity. First, I'll tell you where he's not going to be. He's not going to be in hell or anywhere close. Jesus is going to be in heaven for all eternity. And his desire, the whole point of his death is to bring many sons to glory, is to bring men and women and boys and girls into his presence for all time. That's his goal. How are we? We're good. Now we come to the third unfolding of this narrative. Right there in verse 27. Now, that word now is very important in this passage. We're going to see it a couple more times. 
Now my soul has become troubled. Now connect that with what we just read. His hour had come. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is basically your Gethsemane experience. Remember, Matthew recorded it this way. Jesus says, If possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. That's what's happening here. Father, save me from this hour. I think the the words there can mean, Father, bring victory out of what I'm about to go through. And then the next little juncture right there in verse 28. This is the bottom line for Jesus. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. And then, without warning, a voice came out of heaven. You know, there are only two other times that Jesus heard the voice from heaven, his father. At his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, what did he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Father, glorify your name. Bottom line. That could be a bottom line prayer for all of us. Father, glorify your name. Take my life and glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I both, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So this is beautiful because the Father is saying, I have glorified my name in all that you have done, in everything you've done, in your entire earthly ministry, I have glorified my name through what you have done. And then notice this. And he says, and will glorify it again. In other words, now that you're at this hour, now that you're at this juncture, now that you are at this point of personal sacrifice, I will not forsake you. I will not abandon my purpose for you. I will not leave you. I will glorify my name through a Roman cross, your death on a Roman cross, through the shedding of your blood. I will glorify my name. And in your burial, I will glorify my name. And in your rising from the dead, I will glorify my name. And then in your exaltation, I will glorify my name. And in the end, God's name will be glorified. Right here, we see from heaven that God has, God the Father is just putting his stamp of approval on all that the Son has done and all that he will do, and it will be to the glory of the Father. And then it gets, notice this, verse 29. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it. So this wasn't done in a corner, there's people standing around. Maybe some of these Greeks. They heard it, they were saying this. It thundered. It's about to rain. Interesting. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. 
That's not the first time folks had been confused when they heard the audible voice from heaven. But they were confused. And then to add to the confusion, Jesus answered and said, This voice was not for me, but for you. So he's saying, you people who didn't understand the voice, the voice was for you. Disciples, the voice was for you. How could it be for them? I think in this way, at least, even if they did not understand what was being said, they knew that God had spoken from heaven. And I think ultimately and eventually they do understand But one of the great themes in John is a misunderstanding of the disciples. They just don't get it. And even now, they're still a little confused. How can we have a king with a cross? Jesus answered, this voice has not come for me, but for you. Now, judgment. Here here we go. So, We were at, my soul has become troubled. That was three. Father, glorify your name is four. And then the voice from heaven is five. I both glorified it and will glorify it again. And then from here on out, everything is under that fifth point, the glorification of Jesus. And so Jesus says, now judgment is upon this world. There's world again. Now judgment is upon it. You know, in in the life of Jesus, we see the world passing judgment on Jesus, at least they think. When ultimately, God was passing judgment on the world. That word there now is emphatic. And Jesus is expressive of this emphatic conjunction, I believe. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, there it is again, now. The ruler of this world will be cast out. And this is a reference to the judgment that comes because of Christ and his atoning death for our sin. This is a judgment on the ruler of this world, on Satan, by way of the cross. And it's not happening later, it's happening now, according to Jesus. And then this is beautiful. I wanted to get this in today because it's just so uplifting. Jesus says, and I. So he connects it with verse 31. If I am lifted up from the earth. We read it. Isaiah 52. We read it. He would prosper his son. He would lift him up. He would exalt him. What's he say? Will draw all men to myself. Now that lifting up simply means enclosing the cross. Listen carefully. Jesus wasn't shot down in his death. He was lifted up. And then that lifting up is not only in his cross, in his death, but that lifting up is in his resurrection. He is lifted up. He rose from the dead. He's lifted up. And then we know that he stood on the Mount of Olives. And then from that place, he ascended. He was lifted up. All of that work, beginning with the cross, actually even beginning before, because God said, I've glorified your name. All of that work, the cross, the, 
the death, the burial, the resurrection, the exaltation, all of that is the lifting up. That's the lifting up. You know, have you ever heard somebody say, hey, we're gathered for worship today, we're going to lift Jesus up. That's a little confusing. He's already been lifted up. Are you going to get him any higher? Well, the answer is no, we're not. But what, what do we mean by that? We mean we're going to preach Jesus. We mean we're going to celebrate Christ and what he's done in our lives with folks who are so undeserving, unworthy, sinful, but for some, for some reason and some, in, in some magnificent way, what has he done? There it is right there. He said, if I'm lifted up, he says, from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. I'm going to leave you with this. You can think about it. And you can be a good Berean and go to the Bible. But salvation, according to that verse, has a whole lot to do with God initiating. He said, I will draw all men to myself. He will bring you to the cross. He's lifted up. See him on the cross. If that doesn't win you over, there's nothing win you over. Right? I mean, we could turn the lights out in here, have a fog machine and candles and loud music. That going to do it? No. You know, hear, hear this. If a person won't be drawn by Christ dying on a cross, rising from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father, he can't be drawn. That's it. See Jesus. See him on the cross. See him glorified. He'll do work. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you for our precious Jesus. We thank you for his work done for us. What's your word say? Scarcely for a righteous man would would anyone die. Perhaps for a good man. Some would dare even to die. But God, you have demonstrated your love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Died on that Roman cross for us. We appreciate your shed blood, the shed blood of your son on the cross. We appreciate the fact that you have drawn us. You have caused us to be born again. And to be trusting of the salvation that you provide. Thank you so much. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.